This morning's uh, scripture is from Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 33. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you're new to North Cross, welcome. Uh, we do hope you feel welcome, whether it's virtually or physically. Uh, if you're virtual, just you can email us. Let us know you're here, info at northcrosschurch.com. If you're here present and you're new, there's a welcome table out there um, near, the, near the donuts and the coffee, which, by the way, if you need to get up and get coffee, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, go and do that. It is my last day. I can say that. So you can, you can go get some coffee in honor of me if you'd like. Um, those here again, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for loving me and my family. It means a lot. Well, as you just heard read by Todd, we are going to finish chapter 5 of Ephesians. So I'm going right back to it. So, um, although I didn't get to finish the book of Ephesians with you all, I did think it was important um, to do because I'm really glad to have studied personally and also shared with you all this uh, great book that as I've said every week, is God's vision for the church. That it's a vision that for the community that it is, the community it will be one day, someday. But before we look together at this particular passage, you might kind of go, wow, marriage, going out with a bang. Um, I did just want to acknowledge that that word marriage has, has sort of a cultural lightning rod effect. Um, you know, when I say the word marriage, no one in this room remains neutral on the inside, whether it's personal, personally neutral or politically neutral. And so I'm going to ask ahead of time for some patience to hear me out to the very end, and also to ask for your kindness to not autofill my sermon. You know what I mean by that? Like, don't replace what I'm saying with what you think I'm saying, and also maybe uh, or should be saying. And these loaded sermon topics on emotionally filled-to-the-brim days require some prayer. <laughs> so let's do that together. Can we pray, settle our hearts, and look at God's word together? Let's pray. 
Father, thank you uh, for these, these good words to us. Thank you for um, what they have to say. They stir up a lot for me personally. I know they'll stir up a lot for everyone in this room. And uh, it touches us the deepest parts, um, the longings that we have that have been partially fulfilled or thwarted, the longings that we have that can't be touched by anyone but you, Jesus. And I pray that you would meet us wherever we are, from skeptical to willing, uh, from arms crossed to arms wide open. And I pray that you would just be with us, Jesus, that you would encourage us in your words and that your words would present you to our hearts, high and lifted up, more believable and more beautiful as you are in heaven, so on earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the reason I spent a little extra time addressing the topic of marriage is simple. We either think too much about marriage, like too much of marriage, or too little of marriage. Too much of marriage or too little of marriage. I'll never forget my friend's story about his wedding day. It's a friend of mine that goes way back. His future wife and long-suffering girlfriend had fired off a series of marry me or we're breaking up ultimatums. And my friend had decided to drag his feet for as long as possible. But finally, at the relationship's absolute breaking point, he agreed and decided to get married to his now wife. Anyway, on the day of the wedding, my friend was pale, yet flushed, sweating all over, and his eyes had that kind of disconnected glaze, like, what am I, where am I, who am I? <laughs> and his bride-to-be, this is maybe why you don't look at each other before the wedding, saw this and sort of asked a question and said, um, are you okay? How are you feeling? And my friend answered this question honestly, but poorly. He said, and I quote, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm dying. Not the best answer on your wedding day. At the time, my friend felt this about marriage, like some of us here think too little of marriage. He was overly cynical and fearful about marriage. He remembered his parents' marriage. He saw a ball and chain lurking behind the vows. He thought marriage would be the death of him. It's the same for us. We can think too little of marriage. We can cynically undervalue or dismiss marriage because we have seen or experienced divorce. We've seen or experienced loveless marriages. And so we have a self-protective and often irrational fears about marriage, fears that marriage will or has trapped us in some way, that we're trapped emotionally or socially or professionally by marriage. And others of us, though, on the other hand, think too much of marriage, right? We idolize or overvalue marriage. We have impossible and often over-the-top hopes for marriage to heal us, to give us life meaning, to sort of recognize that we've made it as adults, and that's what marriage becomes a celebration of. And so we can get overly sentimental about marriage, can't we? Right? Overly demanding of what the marital love and life should look like. I appreciate the way that the band, the Avid Brothers, addressed our marriage lust at times in their song, Love Like the Movies. Here's what they say in a song, Love Like the Movies. So you want to be in love like the movies, but in the movies, they're not love at all. With a twinkle in their eyes, they're just saying their lines. 
And so we can't be in love like the movies. Now in the movies, they make it look so perfect. In the background, they're always playing the right song. And in the ending, there's always a resolution. But real life is more than just two hours long. You see, oftentimes things like movies help us fall in love with the idea of falling in love. Instead of realizing that marriage is well more than two hours long. But Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 33, depicts the Christian idea of marriage, which does not promise too little, but also doesn't promise too much. There, in this passage, we're going to learn that marriage is more wonderful and more difficult than we imagine. That is, there's something in marriage that we, that's worth sincerely desiring, what Paul calls a mystery, And then there's also something in marriage that is worth caution. It requires personal submission. And so Ephesians chapter 5, verses 13 through 33, tell us a compelling but challenging truth about marriage. Marriage is a profound mystery that ultimately describes Jesus' love for us, his church. So marriage is a profound mystery, and therefore we enter into this mystery by loving each other like Jesus loves the mystery of Jesus' love that we enter into by loving like Jesus. So in the face of kind of our definite hopes and definite fears about marriage and married life, the end of Ephesians chapter 5 is telling us to take a step back and remember two questions. This is our outline this morning, projected behind me. First, verses 29 through 32, what is the mystery of marriage? What's the mystery of marriage? Second, verses 18 through 28 and verse 33, How do we live into the mystery of marriage? These questions and verses are are, uh, posted behind me and also in your e-bulletin. To keep our questions in order, we're going to attack the passage a little differently. We're going to go from the bottom up, from the the end, and then move our way generally to the beginning. And so we're going to look at verses 29 through 32 together. And that question that speaks to our loneliest longings, what is the mystery of marriage? So what is it? What's the mystery of marriage? Why does it matter so very much to both single and married people? Verses 29 through 32. Two shall become one flesh. Verse 31. Two shall become one flesh. God's promise is that, that on the wedding day, when the vows are made public to each other, before God and friends and family, the bride and the groom change as people. Those who were once two become one in a mystic, sweet communion. They are united. But they often only change, and they change in ways that we don't expect. They don't just change their last names. Oftentimes people change different last names to the same last name, two to one. But in the original Greek of the passage, it suggests a far deeper mystery. One Bible scholar says it this way, marriage here is described as soul-on-soul superglue. Soul-on-soul superglue. God intimately connects, wholesale completes, husband and wife together. But marriage's promise is no one will ever know you better, more intimately than your spouse, and no one, and you will never know anyone else better, more intimately than your husband or wife. Verses 29 through 32 can promise, final and fully, that you can be yourself around somebody else and that someone will embrace and accept you as you. And that hopefully will be the one that you marry. 
A friend of mine, Timmy Rhodes, uh, he came and spoke at our men's retreat a couple years ago. He put it something like this. The mystery of marriage is three kinds of oneness. It's a face-to-face oneness. It's a look each other deep down into the pupils and say, you are mine and I am yours, oneness. Marriage's mystery is also a side-by-side kind of oneness. It's a, this is my best friend who gets me and walks with me through the deepest muck and knee-high grassy splendor as well. Oneness. Third, finally, the mystery of marriage surprises us with an I'm not going anywhere oneness. And say, I know you every crack, blemish, and scar, yet I'm right here with you unto death oneness. And really, I think this third kind of oneness, I'm not going anywhere, is the hardest love to grasp in this world. And it's also the kind of love by its very permanence that can define marriage, or should maybe define marriage. Let me try to illustrate what I'm, what the I'm not going anywhere oneness in marriage looks like with a real-life example. Former Florida State college football coach, Bobby Bowden, uh, he came home after he won the national championship that year, and it was one and a half hours of hearing his name chanted by hundreds of people in unison. Bobby, 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 right? And while even more people lined deep and wide just to see him or touch him or get him to autograph their keepsake. In fact, the crowd and celebration was so intense and so huge, he could not find his own wife for an hour and a half in the crowd. Bowden says it was the best he'd ever felt about himself. Fast forward one year, his top-ranked football team lost the in-state rival Florida badly. And this time, Bowden came back to Tallahassee, and there was not a single person chanting his name. No one was lining up to touch him or to get him to sign his autograph or greet him. That is except one person, his wife, Anne. She was there in person to meet him. Bowden says it was the worst he ever felt about himself that day. But do you know what she said? Do you know what Coach Bowden's wife said and told him at that soul-crushing moment? Anne said this to Bobby's despair. You know I'm the only one who ever really cared about you. And that's because win or loss, you belong to me. You belong to me. Don't we all kind of long for that love? If you're married, isn't that why you got married and what you want most from your spouse? Someone to claim you even when you fail? If you're single, don't you wish for it? Don't you want someone, no matter what, if you fail as a friend or you say the stupidest thing on the planet or you say the most witty thing that you can say in a conversation, no matter how well it goes at the job front, you want someone who loves you side by side, face to face, and who is not going anywhere. We all want that. And the beauty of the passage is that it promises that. It promises someone who loves you, who is one with you like that, married or single. Don't stop short. How? Because in the words of the Apostle Paul, this mystery is profound, verse 32, and it refers to Christ and his church. It refers to Christ and his church. Jesus loves the church. He loves people like us, individuals like you and like me, face to face, 
side by side and forever. But Jesus' marital love is not some sort of blind sentiment like a movie. It's also not so cynical that he won't dare risk getting hurt. History tells us that Jesus got hurt for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. In fact, Jesus is still hurting for us. You see his wounds and his hands and his feet, they are still open. They are not scars. In heaven, he uses his pain to plead our case, to plead our prayers to God the Father. Jesus knows how we handle the stress. He knows how desperately we need to succeed. He knows how very tired we are of everything, and perhaps most of all of ourselves. And with that terrible clarity of seeing us whole, Jesus has said this, you belong to me. You belong to me. You are a member of my body. I will nourish and cherish you forever. You see, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, Jesus took and fulfilled every vow that I made on my wedding day. He is my loving and faithful spouse. In plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish me as long as we both shall live. That is eternal life with him in his love forever and ever. Amen. But some of us here just getting more and more put out by this sermon. Oh, as, I, as Sid waxes about how wonderful marriage is, how it can be and should be, you're mentally scrolling through all of the human marriages that you're familiar with. Uh, you know, even your own marriage. And the survey says, mom and dad, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, me and him, her and me, we, they aren't always face-to-face, aren't always side-to-side. It doesn't really feel like we and they are not, have some sort of not-going-anywhere oneness, at least not for sure. But this realism, this ability to see how difficult marriage truly is, only leads us to ask our second big question this morning. It's our second and final point on our outline. And the question is this, how do we live into marriage's mystery? And this question uh, is found in answer form in verses 18 through 28 and verse 33. These verses tell us that husbands and wives, men and women, live into the mystery of marriage when they submit to each other in the name of Jesus when they submit to each other in the name of Jesus. If you thought the first point was hard, welcome to the second. (laughs) That's right, mutual submission, love and respect is how God calls people to practice marital oneness. And people can get super agitated when they hear the word submit. And rightly so, there is a sad history of insecure men misusing the word submit in their marriages. But St. Augustine of Hippo reminds us that abuse does not rule out use. Misuse or abuse does not rule out use. And so before you call me a sexist or maybe a theological liberal, whichever one you want to do, I want to point us to the Bible and please notice precisely how the word submit is used in this passage and what it actually means. 
First, I want to just say this. Reading the Bible well requires that we take seriously the passage's context and its grammar. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that phrase, a participial phrase for linguists among us, is connected all the way back to verse 18 grammatically. In other words, it's not a new thought that's going on here. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is what we all do. It's what, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's how the Spirit of God expresses itself in all of our relationships. The mutual submission occurs along with encouraging each other in song and singing to God and giving thanks, as we see in verses 19 through 20. And this means the command to submit is a command for everyone. It's not just for wives, it's also for husbands even as it's an invitation to surrender for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus and not just married folks. In fact, a wife's submission is so tied to the mutual submission in her, all of her relationships and in the Holy Spirit that this verb submit in the original Greek is assumed in verse 22. What does that mean? There's no actual verb in the original Greek of verse 22 that says submit. English translators have to insert the word submit from verse 21 for verse 22 to make sense at all. And so please, a plea, don't take verse 22 alone and out of context. So important. Second, the word submit in the Greek, hupotasso, is an action that must be given voluntarily. It cannot be demanded. Submission, hupotasso, is given among equals. If hupotasso meant unequal, right? So let me go backwards. The word definition for hupotasso is given among equals, and therefore the word's definition means that women cannot be inferior. Do you understand that? And so let me just give it to you theologically. If hupotasso meant unequal, then Christians would believe that Jesus the Son is inferior or unequal to God the Father when he submits hupotasso to God the Father's will to come to earth and rescue us. But Jesus and the Father are equal persons in the Godhead, equal in substance, equal in power, equal in glory, even as Jesus chooses to serve God the Father and his good pleasure in the plan of salvation. So maybe a proper reading, I think a proper reading of Ephesians 5 tells us that the husband is also to practice his form of Christian submission or surrender, to put his wife before himself, to count her as more significant, but how, why? By self-sacrificially loving her. The same self-sacrificial love, agapao, that, God, that Jesus uses to love his church. Jesus' life and death show us that power is not given for self-satisfaction. That's not what power is for to lord it over others. Power is a responsibility given to serve others at self-expense. But discussing what a husband's love distinctly looks like does bring up the issue that surrender does in fact look different for each biologically different gender or sex. While husbands, both husbands and wives, are certainly called to practice both love and respect with each other, Ephesians 5, verse 33, 
asks husbands to more often practice self-sacrificial love, agape, and wives to more often practice respect, hupotasso. And that's complicated, and there's a lot of things to say there, but let me just say this. This is because the Bible teaches that men and women are absolutely equal in every single way, and that we're also different. And we need different expressions of submissive love in marriage. In marriage, men long for wives to cheer them on and follow their lead sometimes because since the curse of Eden, we can feel defeated before we start. And we can, we're scared to death, if we're honest, of risking failure. In marriage, women long for husbands to assure them that they're special and worth fighting for because since the fall of Eden, they can feel so ordinary or invisible and fear other people's opinions of them or rejection. Love, respect, submission. At the end of the day, these are extremely loaded words for a reason. Do you know why? They form the intersection of marriage's mystery. It's the corner of rest and risk and vulnerability. And they're all about husbands and wives choosing to confess their weakness and to kiss each other's shames. To put a finger or a word or a hug on all those ways that we feel least respected. And all of those times when we feel at our most unlovely. And we live in this cultural moment that struggles to affirm this, both equality and diversity. And when it comes to the gender and marriage relationships, we, we do tend to employ these metaphors. We have a business metaphor that we like a lot right now, right? Where people get reduced, where persons get reduced to a product and emotions get reduced to satisfaction with your spouse. And then we also use these political metaphors where a relationship is dumbed down to only voting and power dynamics. And please know that our metaphors, the ways that we visualize our world, matter deeply. And so I have to ask this question, what if we changed our metaphor for marriage? What if the relationship of marriage is actually much more like a mysterious dance? The mysterious dance of Jesus. Listen to the way that theologian Robert Farrar Capon expands upon Ephesians 5 and its metaphor. It's a long, heavy quote. I'm just going to give you a heads up. I put it in your bulletin. Read it. Father's Day, pleasure. <laughs> okay, read it on your own. The difference between the husband and the wife is not one of worth, ability, or intelligence, but of role. It's, functionally not or, it's functional, not organic. It's based on the demands of the dance, not on a judgment as to talent. In the ballet, in any intricate dance, one dancer leads, the other follows. Not because one is better, he may or may not be, but because that is his part. Our mistake is to think that equality and diversity are unreconcilable. The common notion of equality is based on the image of a march. In a parade, really unequal beings are dressed alike, given guns of identical length, trained to hold them at the same angle in order to keep step with a fixed beat. But it is not the parade that is true to life. It's the dance. There you have real equals, assigned unequal roles in order that they may achieve individual perfection in the whole. 
Nothing is less personal than a parade. Nothing more so, more personal than a dance. Marriage is a hierarchical game played by co-equal partners. Keep that paradox and you move into the freedom of the dance. Alter it and you grow weary with marching. It's a lot. Read it again on your own. If you're still with me at this point, (laughs) congratulations. Um, Also, if you've actually heard me out and you haven't uh, tuned me out or worse, you're probably asking a really simple question that's kind of been answered, but not really. So what? So what? Well, I'd like to offer a simple invitation that I think comes straight from this passage. Men and women alike can enter into the mysterious dance of oneness, whether single or married, even this morning. How does that work? What does it look like inside and outside of marriage? And I'm, maybe a final story will help. There's a website that's been around for several years now called postsecret.com. Here's how it works. People send their deepest secrets on a postcard, and this website posts the confessions anonymously and online. People have mailed secrets like, I use a bracelet of Jesus to hide my cutting scars. And when my friends go on diets, I discourage them. This is really just because I want them to be fatter than me. And finally, sometimes the path out of the swamp feels too hard. Sometimes I feel like I just belong here. Behind each of these posts, there's this wild hope that someone will love that person in their deepest and most private shame. One time, on the same website, a woman sent a letter and not a postcard, and it was posted on the website, and it read this. The letter went like this. I have made six postcards with all the secrets I was afraid to tell the person I tell everything to, my boyfriend. This, the, this morning, I planned to mail them to you, but instead I left them on a pillow next to him while he was sleeping. Ten minutes ago, he arrived in my office and asked to marry me, and asked me to marry him, and I said yes. This is what marriage should be like. This is what all good relationships in general are all about. It's about finally getting to let your guard down. It's about finally getting to tell someone the things that we keep secret. And that person doesn't run away. And maybe that person even runs towards you. The mystery of marriage is that we can all be naked and unashamed. Where? How? with Jesus, because Jesus loves his bride. He cherishes his people, even in our deepest shames. You see, Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. He loves us into loving each other that tenderly like he loves, that with all of his self-giving sacrifice, with all of his other recognizing respect, with all of his selfless submission, So at the end of the day, Jesus is that someone everyone on postsecret.com is actually looking for. Jesus is that somebody behind every married and single confession. Jesus is behind every single and married moment of utter and complete acceptance too. And I want you to hear this especially this morning, North Cross Church. The end of Ephesians chapter five is not primarily about your present or your future marriage. It is 
primarily about your spiritual marriage to Jesus. And I want to leave you with this, my last sermon as your pastor, with what Jesus has promised you, his congregation, his dear, dear little flock. Jesus is saying, he's your bridegroom. He's your husband, not a pastor, not a friend, not an elder, not a deacon, not a life group leader, not a building, not a surge of attendance. Jesus, Jesus at the altar of the cross said, I am he who will be there with you. I am he who will be there with you, no matter what. I will wash you with my words, and I will give you splendor, holiness without blemish, love without end. And to quote Tim Keller one last time, (laughs) this means a Christian's whole life then is based on a promise kept at great cost. Jesus' promise to his blushing bride that you, North Cross Church, that you are at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That is a promise of a marriage that you can't think too much of, that you can't possibly overvalue Jesus and his love for you. Would you pray with me? Father, about thousands of emotions going on in my own heart and I imagine the hearts of others. There's a part of me that wants to run arms wide open at this and there's a part of me that also says too good to be true. And Lord, I confess that, that conflict in my soul And I confess the moments where I felt your absence more than your presence. But I also want to confess the moments where I felt your presence more than your absence. And I want to confess that maybe it's too good not to be true. And I want to confess that you, Jesus, are at work in ways that we can't possibly imagine. And I pray that you would be the bridegroom. That you'd sweep us off our feet and carries across the threshold in this this time of transition. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.